Thank you, Mitchell. Uh, it is good to be with you all. And uh, when I said yes to uh, Summer in the Psalms, I didn't know I was kicking it off, so that's fun. Um, uh, last week, we did the Gospel of John. We, we haven't finished it. We've been going through it for a while. We're going to be back into it in the fall. Um, so if you're wondering how it's going to end, keep showing up. Psalm 96 is where we are at today, and uh, we'll read it in just a moment, but um, I want to tell a story first. A couple of, actually uh, more than a couple, COVID made like, you know, four years feel like 11 years, and I don't know exactly how long ago it was, a few summers ago. Our family had the opportunity to go to Hawaii on a summer vacation, and one of the activities that we did while we were there was snorkeling. Snorkeling's wild, isn't it? I mean, it really truly is. Like, you put this little tiny tube on your head, and you have these, like, really extremely mono goggles that cover your face, and then you put a flipper on each of your feet, and then you swim out into open waters to see whatever might be lurking beneath them. And you're, like, truly, utterly helpless. You don't have any way to protect yourself. And most of the time, the marine life that you're snorkeling with is not bothered by your presence. In fact, it seems like they hardly even notice that you're there. They go about their business allowing you to spy on them, to point at them, to swim towards them, to interrupt their daily habits. But it's crazy, snorkeling is. I mean, it's not too difficult if you've done it to actually get massive amounts of salt water in your breathing tube. And that's not a good thing for people who are not supposed to breathe water. Particularly salt water is not going to do you any good if you ingest it in anywhere, whether into your lungs or into your stomach. Secondly, you're in water, and even though you have flippers on your feet, you move pathetically slow compared to the marine life that is there. But I think the craziest thing, at least for me, is that unless you're snorkeling in water which you can see the bottom, you really have no idea what is nearby. I mean, really, truly, if you think about it, you, you just have no idea. Your, your purview is the few feet in front of you that you can see, and then beyond that, you are clueless. It's frightening. Because the ocean is incredibly complex, is it not? 139 million square miles of water that averages, averages 2.4 miles deep. The deepest part of the ocean in the Mariana Trench, which is in the Pacific Ocean, is seven miles deep. That's like the known deepest part. That's the distance, in case you're wondering, between Sherwood High School and Newburgh High School. All right? Seven miles deep. And we put on these cute little goggles and jump into the ocean and go explore. It is crazy, and it's fun, and it's frightening. As we begin our series called Summer in the Psalms, I want to invite you to think about our exploration of the Psalms a bit like snorkeling. The Psalms are vast, like the ocean is. Uh, they're the biggest book in the Bible. They cover a large terrain. There are moments in which you, you ascend to this high, incredible place of worship of God, and, and then moments where you find yourselves in deep valleys as you are lamenting and crying out 
for God to rescue you. They give us great insight into the gamut of human emotion, giving us words for things that we can feel that God accepts as worthy of worship. Our joy, our pain, our adoration, our lament, our love, our anger. I mean, you can read some truly, like, pretty awful things that people pray in the Psalms. Like dashing babies against rocks. And these are words that people have spoken as they cry out to God in the midst of what they're experiencing. And the Psalms are an invitation for us to use our own emotions to connect with our Creator. And one of the things that I love the most about the Psalms is that they often use, um, they often use nature and the world around us to actually describe the goodness and the greatness and the beauty of God. And so what, uh, what a, a great opportunity for us this summer to dive in, get it, snorkeling, to the Psalms. But let us not think that as we study the Psalms that all we're going to get is just feel-good experiences. Because even as we see this morning, the Psalms are at the same time incredibly powerful in terms of how they describe worship and invite us into worship and create a liturgy for us to pray. They're also convicting and challenging and frightening because of what they ask us to do and who they ask us to be and how they ask us to worship. So Psalm 96, it'll be here on the screen uh, you can follow along on that uh, in your Bible, however you'd like to. You can close your eyes and listen. Whatever is most helpful to you. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 96, we can break up into essentially three different sections. And so that is what we'll do today. The first is an invitation to praise. The second is a theological claim or a reason for our praise. 
And then the third is the result of believing that thing that we're claiming about the one that we praise, or the result of believing in this theological claim. So an invitation to praise, a theological claim or reason for our praise, and then three, the result of believing that theological claim. We're going to start with the first invitation to praise, which is in the section uh, or verses one through nine. Sing, 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 proclaim, declare. If you notice as we read through that, there is this invitation that is repetitive, right? Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord uh, a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all the peoples. Sing, 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 proclaim, declare. We get the point, psalmist. We are to be a people who are proclaiming, who are singing, who are declaring time and time again God's goodness, who God is, and why we worship him. Did you catch what Psalm 96 says about why we are to worship? Why we're invited to sing, 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 to declare, to proclaim. Why? Because God has saved us day after day. Because God enacts marvelous deeds among all peoples. And so we proclaim time and time and time and time again who God is. Why? Well, frankly, because it's easy to forget. Are you all familiar with earworms? Earworms are these usually... uh, Pieces of songs that get stuck in your brain. And when you're trying to fall asleep at night, they just play over and over and over again. Or you find yourself walking down the sidewalk humming this particular tune. And it just gets stuck. Have you had that experience before? The beautiful thing about earworms is that they're diverse. Like what may be an earworm for me is not necessarily an earworm for you. Like for instance, I grew up watching VeggieTales. And VeggieTales sang this wonderful song, Oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, where is my hairbrush? Right? Yes, now you have an earworm if that's how you grew up as well. It gets stuck in your brain. And it may be at the most inopportune times that, you know, uh, someone sharing something very serious with you and all of a sudden in your brain you hear oh where is my hairbrush you see an earworm gets stuck in your brain because you hear it over and over again usually it's something that's either catchy or uh, something that for some reason you just hear over and over when when our kids were young we had these uh, dvds that were called praise baby and um, really, whoever created these was genius because the production value is incredibly minimal and small. They, they play a praise song, and it's a well-done praise song, and then really, like, floating across the screen are, like, puppets and toys. So it's like, uh, let's see, um, what is it? Uh, the song we just sang, right? Uh, How great is our God? And there's, like, a goose 
And then uh, it's, it's really like disconnected too. It's not thematic. It's not like there's a goose and then there's a duck. It's like there's a goose and then there's a fire truck, <laughs> right, rolling across the screen. And, and for our kids, when they were so young, like they were mesmerized. You would have thought it was the most incredible thing they'd ever seen. And, and my wife and I, when we would put it on, we would not sit and watch it because it was like incredibly dull and boring. But you would hear in the background these praise songs. And they, and they were great, beautiful, wonderful praise songs. But now, when we sing these songs in church, my wife and I have toys floating <laughs> in front of our faces. It's like... It's like a, a, another level of earworm. It's also like an eye worm. <laughs> you see, the psalmist is encouraging us to be people who, who sing, who declare, who proclaim, and, and is doing so using the phrases again and again and again because we need to be people who practice these things again and again and again. We can't just show up on a Sunday morning and say, we are a people of praise and worship. We can't just... Say, uh, you know, I, I've read my Bible and I, I know who Jesus is, therefore I'm a person of praise and worship. No, we need to be reminded of it co- uh, consistently, constantly. Why? Because we are continually bombarded with messages over and over and over. And if we're not doing the work of proclaiming God's goodness over and over again, that will be overcome by the messages that we hear over and over again that are not about God but are pointing us away from God. And I love that the psalmist here invites us time and time again to sing, 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 proclaim, declare. Because what is going to happen in this conversation is that there is going to be something into which we are being invited that is challenging, that is convicting, that is asking us, you better have a good foundation in who God is and what it means to follow God because the thing I'm inviting you into is a difficult thing. You see, too often, the things that we orient our lives around the things that we choose to pursue, to proclaim, to sing, are not about God. We, we sometimes think they are. They're sort of like a subsidiary of God, perhaps, or they're kind of about God, or, or, or it seems like they flow out of who God is, but really, truly, they're, they're not about God. They're, like the psalmist says, they are idols that are trying to convince us that they are worthy of worship but are going to lead towards our demise. Walter Brueggemann is uh, an Old Testament scholar who um, has written a lot about wisdom literature, written a lot about the Psalms. And so uh, he he wrote two books. uh, He's written more books than I could read in in a year. I mean, he, he just is prolific in how many books he writes. But he's written two on the Psalms, and, and I want to pull out a few things that he wrote, because I think um, what, what he invites us, or how he invites us to see what is going on in Psalm 96 is just, it's brilliant. And it, it opened my eyes to, to how Psalm 96 is actually reflecting back to me some areas of my own life 
that I need to work on, areas of sin, areas of, of turning away from God. So Psalm 96, uh, if, you, if you remember, and you can pull it up again, um, it talks about in the um, early part of it about the gods, right? The gods that, um, that, other, uh, that we're invited to wor- we are invited to worship. Now, uh, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the time of uh, the nation of Israel, there were multiple competing gods, like, and they all had names like uh, Marduk and Dagon and Enlil. Like, they had multiple names, and these gods would be worshipped in different communities and in different people groups. So that's just a bit of context. So Brueggemann writes this, and I think it'll be on the screen for you. When the church proclaims the name or says the name of Yahweh out loud, when we sing, 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 declare, proclaim, under its breath, it is also quietly but undoubtedly saying, and no Baal, no Marduk, no Dagon, no Enlil, etc. No, none of these other gods that were tempted to worship or that the nation of Israel was tempted to worship. Doxology or right worship to Yahweh attacks the claim of every other God and every other loyalty. Now, if you're like me, you don't struggle with worshiping the God Marduk. All right, I mean, that's not our reality. But Brueggemann continues. Israel freely confesses, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the people of God, the the ones that God chose and called out, confesses that other gods have no gifts to give, no benefits to bestow, no summons to make, no allegiance to claim. They are massively and forcefully dismissed. Now, it's relatively easy for us, this is Brueggemann continued, it's relatively easy for us today in this day and age to imagine the dismissal of ancient godly rivals. It, it means nothing to us in this day and age. It is more difficult, however, in our contemporary matters to recognize that the alternatives to Yahweh in our time are not these nameable gods, but isms of all kinds that want our loyalty and chase after our life commitment. You see, praise of God interrupts our praise of all the other gods we think can save us. And I don't know which isms for you are particularly inviting. Perhaps it's consumerism. Perhaps it's militarism or sexism or ageism or racism or nationalism. But whatever ism for you is the thing which you often find yourself structuring your beliefs around. And and really none of us would say like, yes, I'm structuring my beliefs around sexism. But the ways in which we operate, the things to which we give value, show that there are things that we worship that are not of God. That are in fact ways of living in opposition to worship of the one true God. Now Psalm 96 continues in verses 7 through 9. Hold on, let me find it real quick. This is what it says. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. 
into verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. All right? This is point number two. The theological claim that Psalm 96 is making. The Lord reigns reigns. And it is the hinge of Psalm 96. So we start with these praises, sing, 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 declare, proclaim. This is who God is. This is who God is in comparison to all these idols. And then we get to verse 10 and we get to this hinge statement, this theological claim, the Lord reigns. Very simple and yet extremely profound. You see, as we praise God, we place God at the highest point of how we live our lives. Because we praise the things that we worship. And so as we time and time again praise God, we place God on the throne. And if you notice what the psalmist does here, the psalmist doesn't say the Lord reigned or the Lord will reign, but it is present tense. The Lord reigns. All the things we want to worship, in which we want to place our hope and our salvation, they may have their day in the sun, but they will eventually pass away. They can have their day, but it will not last. But you know what will? The Lord's reign. It never ends. And this is why we praise. A very simple theological statement, and yet one in which we do Um, we do orient our lives in ways that are going to be pleasing to God if we make that, if we make that our theological claim and our theological truth, the Lord reigns. Nothing else but the Lord. And then the third point, the third section of this psalm, simply what does it mean? We praise God because God is on the throne. God reigns. But what does it mean? How does it invite us into life with God? And this will be my final point here. Again, if we look at the the early part of the psalm, uh, sorry, we go back to the psalm. Who put all these out of order? Here we go. Say among the nations, verse 10, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all this. Let the fields be jubilant over and over again about how the cosmos, the earth, will praise God. But that, uh, that verse 10, that hinge point, the Lord reigns. And then what does it mean for us? The Lord will judge the peoples with equity. And this is... For us, the thing to ponder, the thing for us to consider. How can we, who place God on the throne, who say the Lord reigns, who this becomes our our hinge statement, is the thing that will orient everything else that we do and say and how we act. How can we then become people who live in this world that reflects this belief that the Lord does reign? And Psalm 96 simply says, you'll do so with equity. If the Lord's reign brings equity, guess what? As we're invited to live life with God, we're also going to live our lives in equitable ways. Now, I want to invite you to, to, to maybe um, you know, supplant or remove any sort of current 
cultural context around the word equity because I want us to see and hear how the Bible describes this term. And it's not just a one-off term that is used in Psalm 96. So this word equity that we find in Psalm 96 in Hebrew is called mishar. It occurs 19 times uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, almost exclusively in the wisdom. Just a, a moment here. When I say Hebrew scriptures, I mean what we call the Old Testament, right? Genesis through Malachi, the Italian prophet. No, uh, Malachi. All right. Uh, so when I say Hebrew scriptures, that's, that's to what I'm referring. Um, within the Hebrew scriptures, this word mishar occurs 19 different times. And it occurs in several different books. The first time we read it, it's in First Chronicles. But most of the times we read it are in the wisdom literature books. So Psalms, Proverbs. We also get it in, uh, particularly in, a, in Isaiah a few times, the, the prophetic book. Now, of the 19 times, eight times it's translated equity, all right? So eight out of the 19 times, it's translated equity. The other times it's translated like this, peaceful arrangement, right things, rightly, sincerity, smooth, smoothly, things that are upright, uprightly, uprightness, what is right. Now, you get a little glimpse into the nuances of biblical interpretation because when we're taking scripture that is written in its original language, in this case, the Hebrew scripture is written in Hebrew, and we translate it to English, there is some license that can be taken. And as you read different versions, the NIV or the NRSV or the King James Version or the message, you're getting people's translation uh, nuances, all right? You're getting their, their ways of interpreting it. Just like, you know, uh, when uh, we, someone in my generation said, oh, that's bad, right? It doesn't mean bad. It means it's cool, right? Duh, right? But if you say bad now to my 13-year-old daughter, she's like, what? Why is it bad? No, no, it's cool. That's good, right? Um, you get that in the scripture. So um, this word, Mishar, it shows up time and time again. Equity matters to God. Now, here's the cool thing, all right? This word, Mishar, is a derivative of the Hebrew word, Yashar, which also means to be smooth, straight, or right. Now, when John the Baptist in the New Testament shows up, and he's out in the wilderness doing weird things, eating locusts, dunking people in water, Everyone's like super intrigued, like who's this wild man who's got wild hair and this crazy beard and he's eating locusts and honey and he's dressed in like, you know, not the coolest clothes, kind of stinky, weird dude, but it sounds kind of interesting. I'm going to go and find out what's going on. Do you know what John said and particularly how the gospel writer Luke described what John was teaching and preaching? These are the words that he chose to use. And this is in Luke, and I'm almost done. Luke chapter 3. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Listen to this. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight the rough ways smooth, and all people, and all people, because of this Yashar work, 
this smoothing out work, this equity work, all people will see God's salvation. This is how Luke described the message of John, and John's message was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And he said, when Jesus shows up, the hills and the mountains are going to be brought down, the valleys are going to be filled in, the crooked paths and the rough ways are going to be made straight, so that, why? Every single person will be able to see and know and experience this good news message. And Jesus himself, when he showed up and he started to teach, do you know what he started to do? He started to shatter all of the isms that the people during his time thought would save them. Consumerism. What do you think Jesus was doing in the temple? As he was driving people away who were selling things to people for their sacrificial system, who were trying to make money off of these people's desire to worship, Jesus confronted people's nationalism when they wanted to say to him, the best way to go about what you want to do is to connect with the the power that is currently in existence and use that power to set your reign. He said, I will not do that. He confronted issues of sexism. He, uh, he, He came to women and he saw in them, because of who they were, value and honor. He confronted issues of militarism. When he said, my way will be a way of sacrifice, of giving myself up instead of fighting for it, of giving my life in love. Why? So that all people could experience the free gift of salvation. My friends, this is what Psalm 96 is talking about. We sing, we sing, we sing, we declare, we we proclaim That the Lord reigns. Why? Because under the Lord's authority, when God is on the throne, and God is on the throne, all of these other isms that we think are going to save us are laid low. And the one who can save is raised high. And we become a people who in everything that we do says to every other person, I see you, I value you, and the things that are in your way that keep you from seeing God at work. We're going to fill those in. We're going to lay those low. Why? So that you can see this God who loves you, this God who saves you, this God who gave his life for you, Psalm 96 is a beautiful psalm, one in which we see this beautiful expression, but also it's inviting us into this frightening place, a convicting place. And it's asking us, are we going to be a people who say, God, you reign, and now we're going to work to become a people who, like you, made it so that all could see and all could hear And all could know the good news of Jesus and his sacrifice and his resurrection. Will you stand? We're going to say this prayer together here. Um, And this is a prayer that comes out of Psalm 96. Um, N.T. Wright, New Testament theologian, um, as he studied the Psalms uh, and, 
And for every single psalm, he wrote out a prayer. Um, And we're going to pray this together, and then we're going to sing one more song. So please pray this with me out loud. How glorious to be ruled by you, O Lord, and not by the abstract mechanical laws of nature or the capricious uncertain laws of society. Rule me in the person of Jesus Christ, in whom your kingdom is even now present. Amen.